So I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Thank you, Dr. Anne-Marie Thomas. It's been a great several years of getting to present to her classes, and I really, really appreciate her attention to all the details and all this stuff. I have a talk for you that's really about why we should refocus everything on the planetary life support system today. This is a different kind of talk than I've given before. There's a whole lot of science in here. It's a pretty ambitious amount of stuff to cover, so I just want to go ahead and get started. What we're going to talk about a lot is the biosphere. The biosphere is the sphere of life on Earth. This is just a quick model that's sort of like a half of a tree ring showing that life began long ago. And all of the life and living systems comprise the biosphere. So when I talk about biosphere, I'm talking about life and living systems. And I want to start out, you know, what should we do now? What can you do now? Let's start with some good news. I really um, started biointegrity because I was concerned as a kind of died in the wool environmentalist. What's the number one solution to this climate crisis and to the biodiversity extinction crisis? And I was happily surprised to find out and, and also shocked to find out that at least half of all the biodiversity on Earth is in tropical forest ecosystems. So what you see in this map is uh, the red in the Amazon is the greatest concentration of biodiverse vertebrates or animals, essentially. And this is a good proxy for how biodiversity is concentrated. You go across the tropics, you see the yellow in Africa and the yellow just east of Asia or India, rather, over there in China and Southeast Asia. And then between the two white lines in the islands between China and Australia, and that is Indonesia. And so this, this region of Central America into South America, across Africa and Indonesia and Southeast Asia, this is where the greatest biodiversity is. It's also, I was amazed to find out where the greatest carbon density is on lands. And so I kind of got my answer right then, you know, what's the number one solution to climate change and the species extinction crisis. If you're gonna protect those two things, you need to protect these tropical forests. And that's how biointegrity began. You can see essentially the most intense parts of that biodiversity map and those carbon maps are here in this uh, tropical forest map. So I wrote a paper called The Systemic Climate Solution. You can check it out. It's in Google Docs. It's on the homepage of the biointegrity website also. Because no one had really combined all of the superlatives that are in tropical forests. And I became a tropical forest advocate. It's the biggest carbon sink on land. It's the number one utility we have for pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. It contains, as I said, at least half of all the biodiversity on earth, even though tropical forests cover less than 5% of earth, at least 25%, probably more like 40% of the life support services on earth are generated by tropical forests, maybe a lot more. All of the remaining uncontacted tribes, the most uh, concentrated groups of threatened indigenous communities, and then go back over to the right, it's number one at cooling the planet and preventing storms and stabilizing the climate. I'll explain that in a little while. It produces 2,000 to 3,000 foods, the tropical forest system. There are cures for cancer and other things like PMS and depression and just everything that you, know, you can think of that we need help with that we can't make in labs that grow in tropical forests. And then of course, we're from there. We are great apes descended from tropical forests. So I thought all that was incredibly powerful. And when I went to sort of understand why, it was because the productivity is most intense in this part of the planet. I thought, hmm, that's a really uh, awesome thing as well, that biodiversity and bioproductivity seem to go pretty well together. So you can kind of see here tropical forests. Now, this is our life support system. This is what I like to say has, has allowed our technology advanced civilization to exist. This is reality effectively for us. All of the ideas, all of the beliefs, all of the everything that's ever happened, essentially, other than a few people getting off the earth is because of this breathing system that is our planet. And so you'll notice real quickly, you'll notice again that the Amazon in South America is green the entire time. And as you go across the tropics, the Congo and Central Africa and those grasslands are, are pretty green most of the time. Look over at Southeast Asia where China and, and so forth are, those are pretty green, but you go down to the islands of Indonesia, those are green all the time. Central America is pretty green as well, but the rest of the planet then goes through seasons. The tropical forests are productive year round, but that white that you see descending from above, that's the seasonal change in the cycles of the temperate climate. And so BioIntegrity started promoting protection of tropical forests as the most impactful thing you could do to help the climate and species. We've now our community has protected over 320,000 acres of tropical forests. That's bigger than Austin, contains over 64 million trees, 
these other numbers here, which I will explain to you in terms of the impacts that they've had, the, the 280,000 tons and the 85 million tons and all these things that are not just about carbon are extremely valuable. Like we can't really come up with an economic value. So trees, you know, you could say these are all realistically speaking, kind of large trees. So if you give that a dollar value, about $2,000 a tree, that's over $128 billion. They are absorbing over 280,000 tons of carbon dioxide per year. That's enough to take something like 56,000 cars off the road per year, or that's about as much carbon dioxide pulled out of the atmosphere as more than two and a half billion dollars worth of rooftop solar systems keeps out of the atmosphere. Then you look at this 85 million tons. This is the biomass of the trees, tree trunks, tree leaves, tree limbs, all those things. We have pretty good estimates on how much carbon is in these ecosystems because they're above ground and we can measure the, measure the carbon density in those species and these trees. And so Tesla last year, I put 2022 by mistake, but Tesla 2021, its entire fleet of sales and all the remarkableness about Tesla offsets something like 7.8 million metric tons of carbon dioxide through their new car sales. That doesn't account at all for the enormous infrastructure build that is Tesla. But anyway, the total amount of carbon in these forests is about 10 times that. And then the rest of these things are literally irreplaceable. We can't live without this biodiversity. We can't expect it to be well cared for if we don't help these indigenous communities right now. And this oxygen production and freshwater filtration that comes from these forests is part of our life support system paradigm. And I'm going to explain some of that more later. But what we're talking about here, big picture wise, is putting life before technology. When we talk about the climate solution, the future of life on earth, the future of how we think about the environment, and so on and so forth. So you can support the tropical forest solution I just showed you. It's incredibly inexpensive. And so you go to biointegrity.net forward slash solutions, and you'll find that you can protect an acre of tropical forest for $2 by donating to our partner, Rainforest Trust. And you just go through the links there to make the donation and, and choose the project. There are even less expensive ways to help protect tropical forests. And if you want to uh, connect to those, contact me and I'll, I'll find them for you. But biointegrity forward slash solutions is where you can literally take care of your carbon footprint for about $16 of a donation to Rainforest Trust. So I encourage you to do that. If you want to make the biggest difference possible per dollar that you can invest in environmental solutions, protect tropical forest. Okay, now I'm going to really, really switch over to a totally different aspect of this environmental situation that we're in. You know, what are we, what are we doing? What's going on here? Well, I, I think one of the reasons that we are not responsive to the environmental crisis, obviously, probably everyone here agrees, is our culture. And we're in this moment of trying to understand or decide, you know, are, are we smarter than the planetary life support system that supports us. We don't, though, have a reason, literally ethically, to care for the environment. It's just not really in our, our paradigm of modern industrial living. But what if we did? And Biointegrity has a project called allcreation.org. I come from a, a very, uh, I'm a cultural Christian. My parents are like saintly Christians. So when I was a kid growing up, I had super exposure to this culture of Christianity. And uh, Genesis 1, the first chapter of Genesis is the, has the verse about, I give you dominion over the birds of the air and so on and so forth. That's been interpreted to be about human beings being given sort of spoiled brat license to use nature however they wish to consume it, destroy it. So allcreation.org puts out quarterly issues of a magazine that explores connections between people of faith and spiritual practice and the sacred texts and the modern thought. And so long story, very short, we put out this issue called dominionism, which you can find at allcreation.org. And um, it's got 12 people talking about what dominion means to them, 12 people of faith. There's these beautiful ideas. I'll just say, you know, the, I'll focus on the one in the, in the middle and the one on the bottom left. The one in the middle is the, says the Hebrew scripture makes no distinction between the breath of a dog and the breath of a human. And then the one on the bottom left, God created the universe and therefore has complete ownership over all creation. Humans are God's partners in bettering creation. So I'm reading this stuff and I'm thinking, okay, this is different from the culture that I'm in. If you look at one more of these, the bottom right uh, light color, this is a Muslim imam named Islam Mossad, who is a hadith. He has memorized the entire Quran. And he's saying in uh, Islam, you are answerable to God for what you do with the animals and the plants and the streams. 
And so they feel accountable to God for the nature they are entrusted with. And this is all, you know, sort of really interesting modern take on this stuff. These people are not really environmentalists like me. These are people of faith that are trying to find a deeper spiritual life. Reverend Brooks Burnt on the upper left is from the uh, United Church of Christ. He's head of their environmental programs. And he's saying that this Genesis interpretation is off base. It's more accurate to say that humans are supposed to be servants of the other life and the creation. And then on the bottom right, Dr. Norman Wurzba, who's a rock star theologian at Duke Divinity School, he's, he's describing the miracle of reality of the biology of our planet, which is that we are all sharing in this divine existence. We don't really know where we come from. We don't know what makes us make our bodies or how we come into existence, but we are sort of animated out of the ground. You know, life first appeared on land maybe 600 million years ago. It would have sort of crawled up as an algae and over time built soils and so on and so forth. And so he's saying, you know, we are animated out of the ground to share the world with the diversity of creatures that we see. And Wurzba actually makes a the most important points in this. And he actually, he released a book on dominionism, which is what inspired this issue. The main sort of central point is, you know, regardless of a religious perspective, just a cultural perspective, it doesn't seem that there could be a more important question than to figure out how to live well in our places with each other. You know, this is the spirit of the dominion that he sees in Genesis 1, 26, verse 26. More importantly, over there on the bottom right, Wurzba is saying that when Genesis was written, when the Bible was written, these were agrarian people, meaning they were living off the land. They understood, as every farm kid understands today, you can't beat a cow. Let me say that again. You can't beat a cow to get milk. You can't you know, tyrannically control your plants. You have to make them as healthy as possible and hope for the best. It's about a relationship. It's about a relationship that is animated by care, this idea of farming and, and uh, having an agrarian life where you're living off the land. And then he goes on to say, more importantly, that this anthropocentric interpretation of, of this dominion idea didn't really come into the Christian theology until we had cities and science, until the last few hundred years of enlightenment and industrialization. So every sort of religious Christian person should know that the Bible is about God. It's not about humans. To make dominion about whatever serves the human is the wrong interpretation. And then you take this one step further, what, what it's really saying is maybe best analogized as a, a sort of a babysitter idea that we are entrusted to care for these creatures. In this model of this religion, when it says, I give you dominion, it's saying, I am calling on you to be the care provider. This is not a role of use. This is, I am giving you dominion over my household. I'm giving you dominion over all of my dominion of other life. In the passage, God literally names all of the things that creep, all of the things in the waters, and all of the things that fly. That's all of the life on the earth. And by saying I give you dominion, it's the same type of idea as when you give a babysitter dominion over your household, you come home, you don't want to find your kids, you know, distressed, you don't want to find your resources consumed and destroyed. You expect to have great care. This is about care this dominion. This is a relationship of care. To be in relationship with these other creatures is to be attentive to them. And then one other piece I want to point out, especially because uh, hopefully a lot of this audience is younger, is this brilliant writer, Sarah Nahar. She's probably late 20s. I recommend everyone read her piece. It's called Discipleship and Defecatory Justice. And so what she's talking about is that even the most you know, mundane of our everyday practices, flushing the toilet, makes us complicit in egregious harm to other life. So I mean, literally everything in our current way of life is destroying the other life on the planet at short and fast rates. And so if the planet is our life support system, which it is, it's safer for us to transform than to stay the same. Another reason to care is that we could have 50,000 more years of a stable climate. This comes from uh, Johan Rockström, who is a researcher who's released several papers called Planetary Boundaries. And then late last year, put out Breaking Boundaries on Netflix and a book a little bit earlier. I recommend everybody check out this one-hour documentary. It's a little different version of this. What I'm showing you is kind of a distillation of how to act, I think. Here's a third reason. I've kind of already given this away, but this thing we call the environment is literally the life support system of the planet. And somehow we forgot. You know, people that are still indigenous, people that are still agrarian and living off of the land, they haven't forgotten that it's the other life all around them that they rely on for everything. 
and we need to reconnect to this big picture. So real quickly again, Biosphere Earth is the composition of life and living systems on our planet. When you get a bunch of life together, it makes an ecosystem and that ecosystem produces life support services for us. Life began somewhere in the range of 4 billion years ago. We know that there's a consensus on 3.8 billion years ago and there's more recent science that says maybe 4.48 billion years ago. So somewhere in this range. And then about 66 million years ago was when the dinosaurs went extinct and the, the life that has come since then is what led to human beings on earth. This system of life really does wrap around the planet. The microbial life on our planet goes below the crust of the earth and all the way up into the highest points of the atmosphere on the earth. Essentially anywhere there's moisture, there is microbial life. And the microbial life on our planet is billions of years old. I'll show you that in one second. This next series of things I'm going to show you is from a bunch of research I've titled The Value of Biosphere Earth. So the value of the life support system. And you can go to biointegrity forward slash value to check out all the citations in this. Hundreds and hundreds of citations to support everything I'm showing you. So the, the quick again on the history of life on our planet is that microbes have been here at least 4 billion years, maybe close to four and a half billion years. And human beings showed up around 200,000, maybe 300,000 years ago. This is what Earth looked like about 3 billion years ago. So it's somehow figured out how to adapt to extreme climate changes, extreme changes in resources, extreme catastrophe, and develop into what we think of as the normal reality today. And as I mentioned, ecosystems, you know, this is what makes up the biosphere's living system. They contain life. They make life, they make our life support system services, and that makes also climate stability, that biosphere and the climate are entangled. The biosphere is over 4 billion years old, probably, and entangled with the climate system. Also, again, uh, it's the only life support system in the known universe, biosphere Earth. So this is a, just a one mapping of a bunch of ecosystem services. These are things that come from the development of the life support system over time. They're things that we rely on, such as decomposition, such as pollination, such as uh, air quality and water quality and uh, flavors and migrations of species and microclimate, cloud creation, seed dispersal, communication, um, carbon storage, instinct, nurturing. All these things are coming from life and the life system. The life system has developed over this long, long period of time into being able to become the life support system for human beings. And um, when the climate warmed up about 10,000 BC, roughly 12,000 years ago, we saw this pro proliferation of life that led to what has made technology possible, civilization possible. It's this fluorescence of life that's allowed us to flourish as a technology advanced civilization. So a fourth reason to care is that this system that is our life system is in serious trouble right now. This study from 2016 said that Nearly three quarters of humanity is already in jeopardy from uh, life support system collapse. We've of course seen serious wildfires, serious flooding. Um, you know, the coral reefs are going down, that affects fisheries. There's all kinds of things that are happening. It's, it's really on. This is not, not a joke. This is not the most uplifting of presentations. This is a call to change presentation. We know that between 1970 and 2018 and those 48 years, Human beings grew so quickly, it reduced total wildlife on Earth by about 68%. We know that less than 3% of lands are still considered intact wilderness today, and it is the intactness of the wilderness that built the life support system. So in this study, you're seeing in purple the last intact wildernesses on land. Those are, as you can see, mostly in interior Greenland and northern Canada, where really not much life wants to live. And then a, little, a few other places, including in the Sahara, also not a very desirable place to be. We know that more than 100 species are going extinct every day, according to the UN. They say around 150, it's just an estimate. We know the Great Barrier Reef is bleaching right now for the fourth time in six years, and I think the sixth time in 10 years, and you know, they're not supposed to bleach more than once every 20 years to stay healthy. We all know about wildfires and drought. We don't get a lot of information, but Africa is, parts of Africa, uh, south of the uh, Sahara, between the Congo and, and the uh, Sahara are in serious trouble all the time because of the devegetation and so on and so forth. We know that we've just completely changed the way that animals migrate on our planet. So this is showing you in gold what a lion's normal migration would have been just about 150 years ago, even you could say probably 100 years ago, and then in orange, the land masses that are available to lions today. 
we've completely changed the way this system of life functions. This is showing you that all of all the vertebrate species, meaning animals with backbones, nearly 70% of them are currently endangered. The UN has said that a million species are endangered with extinction right now. So what is driving all this is the rapid growth of humanity that has been destroying habitats and destroying uh, resource flows for other species. We didn't hit a billion people on earth until 1804. This is when Thomas Jefferson is getting reelected as president. We will hit 8 billion people next year. So we've been here hundreds of thousands of years, but we didn't hit critical mass. And most people are well aware of this, but we didn't hit critical mass until really recently. And it's particularly the last five, uh, 50 years, not five years, the last 50 years that has been extreme. I, I think it's, uh, it's important to throw out a Putin analogy here that our way of life is very much you know, a, a self-destructive way of life. We are destroying the future of the life system on the planet by destroying these habitats and this biodiversity. And we are increasing the scale of that every day right now. We're not going in the right direction at all. And we need to change first and foremost, I think, our awareness. And that's again, what I'm trying to share with you here today. When you look at what's in the greatest crisis vectors right now, it is biodiversity and the nutrition that biodiversity depends on. The climate change problem obviously is super out of control as well, but it's literally not as urgent as the biodiversity problem. So it is our way of life that is collapsing the ability of the life system to regenerate itself and to continue balancing the climate as it did for the last 12,000, 10,000 years. We are driving this collapse spiral and our, we should reverse that immediately, right? So what do we do? And I think, again, this is about changing the way we live, changing the way we think about reality. We need to focus on the life system. Stop talking about the environment. Start talking about the biospheric reality that is our only place to live. And in the promo for this, we talked about the biospheric reformation of the economy, that we move everything about our modern way of life into being in balance with this system of life that sustains us at every literal level. This is, I think, the most exciting advancement challenge we could possibly pursue. So in a biospheric reformation direction, the most important thing is to restore the integrity of the biosphere, to build the economics that sustain ecosystems that we have to have to survive, to allow them to regrow and reconnect, to figure out how to integrate our way of life back into the security of a robust planetary natural system, and that we advance everything about our technologies, our industries, our economics into this paradigm. We are in a human-centric paradigm with you know, everything about our culture now. Really the history of industrialization is that we have assumed that it didn't matter. The environment wasn't gonna matter and that humans came first. And now we're at the state where there's a study that says, if we don't stop deforestation by 2030, we will see civilization collapse by 2040 or 2060 at the latest. So this is not, about you know your grandkids. It's about you right now, this whole need for us to make change. The main question then is for a biospheric reformation is, is it good for all life? The thing that we're doing, the decision, the product that we're making, the, the way that we're making it, the way we're extracting it and disposing of it, does it contribute to the life system? Does it make the life support system weaker or stronger? This is the criteria that we need to live by now because there are so many of us. And what I want to get into now is this idea of a biospheric climate solution. Can fixing the life system fix the climate? And I'm here to tell you, oh yeah, it looks really good if we make these major changes, if we figure out how to change our values and uh, finance the future economy that takes care of our life support system. So the biospheric climate solution looks at the reality of the way the planet is productive and what we can gain by rebuilding the ecosystems that have been destroyed recently. And so it's not just a massive amount of carbon reduction that can come from a biospheric climate solution. It's also stuff we can't get from technology. So these three things, cooling and irrigation and circulation. And what I'm about to show you is gonna show you that if we do the best we can for the land system on earth, we should be well out of the climate crisis within 10 to 30 years. And we should be in reversal of the climate crisis by the end of the century. By protecting and restoring these systems, we get the biodiversity habitat back as well, and that secures our life support system. So this is the strategy I think we should be looking at. I'm going to show you these uh, few things here that the carbon potential is enormous. The reduction of greenhouse gases is enormous, and these other pieces that we can't get from technology. Ecosystem quality influences global moisture cycles, global temperature, 
global circulation of air and water, and then the ability of ecosystems to hold carbon and, and capture carbon out of the atmosphere. Every um, thing on earth is, is made of carbon to some degree, carbon and water. And these are the two number one greenhouse gases. So the healthier the ecosystem is, the more carbon it can uh, hold on to, and this is better for restoring temperate climate. When you look at the most important things to do first, it's the type of conservation that I just showed you, the tropical forest stuff, where we look at the ecosystems that have the most value to the planetary life support system and protect and restore those. And then also we need to deal with agriculture immediately. Our agricultural system is really worse than our fossil fuel system to the future of the planetary life support system. I haven't seen a study to verify that, but I could explain that in Q&A if we have a few minutes. So let's talk about carbon real quick. Can the life support system consume enough carbon to avert climate change? In 2018, the UN science body on climate change, the IPCC, told us that we needed to reduce greenhouse gas emissions every year starting in 2030 by 28 billion metric tons. That's 28 gigatons CO2e. It's 28 billion metric tons of greenhouse gases every year starting in 2030. And then by 2050, it needs to be reduced by 53 billion metric tons per year. And by the end of the century, we need to have consumed 730 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide equivalents or greenhouse gases. And if you just look on the right there, you can see we can get more than 28 by the end of this decade. We can at least maintain that to 2050 and we can get 86% of that 730 need. And these are the top end numbers we need. These are not the safety numbers. These are the making sure this is staying um, in, well in the safety zone. Yeah, we can get 86% of the big number that we need by the end of this century. So everything I'm showing you here is just the land carbon system. And there are a lot of options I'm leaving out. I'm just gonna show you basically two ideas. First of all, how fast though, can we get this carbon reduction out of the atmosphere? How fast can these regrowing ecosystems pull carbon out of the atmosphere? And what the science tells us is that they expect the first 50% of that giant number, the 630 number, happened in the first 20 years as the ecosystems reestablish. And so actually, let me go back to that. So, you know, let's say you're 20 years old. Um, and if we started to do this today, the rest of what that paragraph says is that by the time you were 86 years old, we would be well out of the climate crisis. And the average human lifespan in America right now is 89 and 90 years old. So this would be great, right? You'd be able to um, live to the average lifespan and see the climate restored. I don't know that anyone is um, looking directly at how good can we do? What's the best we can do here? And this is what I'm trying to show you is that over the next 30 years, just by focusing on these two areas, the first two things in line one and two are from the recent climate conference in November in Glasgow, Scotland. And then the bottom eight, starting with reducing food, that's all about agriculture and how we make food and make commodities. So let me explain these real quick. The Glasgow stuff back in November, the, uh, assembly of 180 nations on earth or 200 nations, whatever it was, committed 137 of them committed to stopping deforestation by 2030. What has to happen? They also committed to restoring 711 million acres of degraded lands, degraded mostly by agriculture. If they did those two things, we get somewhere around seven and a half, seven point whatever gigatons of carbon dioxide removal per year by 2030. And of course, we're trying to get up to 28 gigatons. So that's a piece of that. Then you look at the rest, all of this food stuff we can do. These are low cost productivity improvements. These are not things that make the business harder. These are things that should make the quality of the produce better, whatever that produce is. So number three, reducing the agricultural and food wastes associated with the food and agricultural system. And by agriculture, if you don't know what that is, you know, we would grow cotton, we grow, you know, lots of plants to make things, paper, et cetera, et cetera. So reducing the wastes that are emitting greenhouse gas is significant. Another four and a half billion metric tons per year by 2030. And on down the list there, shifting to uh, plant diets, plant-based diets, managing the nutrients and manures on these lands better, improving cultivation of rice and, and improving cattle feed so it's healthier and then really focusing on soil carbon sequestration, making our soils as rich and healthy as we possibly can. All of that adds up to, if you look in the bottom right corner of that graph, about 37.1 billion metric tons of greenhouse gases removed from the atmosphere per year. That's 132, if you look in that green box, 132.5% of the solution we need. So I sent this around to some um, conservation biology, A-lister people that I know, and 
they said this is amazing, but you know it's not being talked about in the mainstream science yet. So there, there could be overlap in some of these areas. So what I'm showing you now is that you know even if you assume that all of the um, all of the emissions reduction from deforestation is somehow wrapped into this agricultural stuff, which is which is what one of the people said. You still end up, if you look at the green box on the bottom, if you zero out the emissions reduction from the deforestation number, you still end up with nearly 120% of the solution you need. And a lot of people point out that it's pretty unlikely that the world will stop eating high emissions beef before the end of this decade or by the end of this decade. But let's just take that number off. You get 104% of the solution you need. You take both of these numbers off. You get 91% of the solution you need. And these are modular numbers. Over the next 80 years, by protecting this tropical forest infrastructure and the ecosystems around it, the most productive parts of the planet, the 30% of the most biodiverse lands that have been degraded, if we do that, if we restore those lands, it would stop 71% of predicted extinctions and reduce total carbon emissions since the Industrial Revolution by about 50%. That's that big number I showed you a minute ago, 700 and, uh, 630 gigatons of total carbon dioxide removal, I think it's 631 in the study, by the end of this century is totally achievable just by doing the right things for ourselves and the land system on our planet, protecting the biodiversity and the bioproductivity on the planet. So here are the main ideas again, fixing agriculture, what you saw in that graph, and then stopping deforestation and restoring the land biosphere, about 711 million acres. This can get us to a realistic biosphere climate solution that only improves every aspect of the climate system, every aspect of the life system, secures the food system, creates jobs for people that are regenerative and restorative. There's more and more to say about it. And again, the range is from 91 to maybe 130% potential. I don't know why we're not all looking in this direction. You know, again, what's the best we can do here for our life system, for ourselves, for the climate? The carbon absorption potential is enormous in the next 30 years and in this century. And I only showed you two things, right? Here's 10 more that are absolutely realistic, that are distinct from what I just showed you. And I won't go through this list. We can come back to it in Q&A, but it ranges from oceans to different agricultural techniques than the ones that are discussed here, to reconnecting these migratory ranges, to bringing in composting at the municipal scale so that we're enriching our soils everywhere we possibly can on the planet, integrating wildlife back in and food production back into our urban places. Lots and lots and lots of possibilities. For these other three things, we're really on all four of these things. We're talking about the sponge. This is maybe the most important concept for everyone here to carry out of here is that what you see in this graph is a whole lot of carbon, first of all. That carbon is in the vegetation, it's in the soils, it's in those giant trees. Then you see these blue moisture things flying off of the water. That's uh, evaporation. And then we have evaporation being captured by the plants and cycled by the plants. When you get to the tree scale of evaporative moisture recycling and cycling, it cools the planet. And then also forests are the reason that we have rain, about 60 to 80% of the rain inside our continents. Forests are what move rain across continents. They're the most important aspect for our continental system to move moisture across the planet. We have to have forests to keep the planet productive on land. So. We just looked at a bunch of emissions reduction from protecting ecosystems and allowing them to grow and, and restoring them. But there's also physical cooling that these systems provide. And the forests on Earth are already cooling the planet by about a half a degree Celsius. We're trying to keep from getting to one and a half degrees or two degrees Celsius. So if we lose the forests, we blow that budget. But if we restore the forests as has been committed to in this Glasgow thing, we will see by the end of the century we will see the planet cool another half degree. And that's what I mean about being able to reverse climate change. By the end of this century, we can pull an enormous amount of carbon out of the atmosphere and we can restore the physical cooling that forests provide in particular. That's why I'm telling you about forests and not oceans today because forests are a more accessible resource for stopping and reversing global warming. So this of course is how the sun hits the planet. And just to show you quickly the power of the tropical forest system and other forest systems, they are, incredibly uh, important to keeping the planet cool. It is what we call leaf area that provides this service. It is moving moisture, it's inhaling carbon. When uh, precipitation falls, it moves into all the tissue of a plant and into the soil and then evaporates and transpires off and it's just constantly happening. It's like us drinking and, and peeing. 
and this is how plants live. Uh, it's also like us drinking water and sweating. This is how we cool our bodies. And when you look at the impact of a, of a moist system or a system that can hold moisture, it's dramatic. So just quickly on the left in the green box, you see that a forest or even a wet grassland, the, the temperature of the dirt is gonna be around 84 degrees Fahrenheit. Everybody knows that the asphalt on the other hand is gonna be- Awesome, okay, thanks for staying with it. So this third macro capacity that forests have for the planetary ecosystem is they literally create precipitation. They encourage precipitation. Again, this idea of algae crawling up on land, then uh, micro plants, and then ultimately about 300 million years ago, forests, large trees. And as these things grow, they pull moisture towards them and that moves moisture further inland on the continents. It's this S curve of the more vegetation, the more precipitation moves inland. Vegetation is incredibly perfectly designed for holding moisture as long as it possibly can, for moving it in impossible ways relative to what we know how to do technologically. And when you look at this uh, irrigation, this self-irrigation thing, this is particularly powerful in tropical forests. When the transpiration and evaporation is happening from the plants, it moves an enormous amount of moisture across the planet. We don't have another way to do this. We can't rebuild the sponge, and we certainly can't do it pervasively in the places it belongs on the planet. I'm going to speed up a little bit since we are, we lost a little time to some of these technological things. So I'll just tell you what's happening here is this is the intelligence of this life system. It is choosing when it needs moisture. It's grabbing it when it needs it. Obviously, it doesn't control the flow of moisture, but it controls the release and the sharing of this moisture. And this, all of that ability that is its own survival comes from the reality that every organism really wants to thrive. This is the sort of natural bias of the physical biosphere. It seems to want to go and, and thrive, live to its fullest capacity. So we can't control these things, we can't build these things, but we can rely on this utility of self-regulation, meaning just like your body is regulating itself, just like you're making decisions, different kind of decision-making, more physical, but it is a individual property that comes from other life. It's what we're trying to achieve with AI and all that. We've already got it. We've got it in a planetarily pervasive way across these multiple spheres. And all of this movement of moisture is creating multiple climate-centric security services we have to have. Again, back to the ecosystem services idea. The sponge is why we have ecosystem services on land. The sponge ranges, of course, from deserts to forests and coastlines to grasslands, but the sponge, the sponge, the sponge, the sponge, this is our food system protection. This is our best resource for cooling the planet. This is the best resource for maintaining the life support system of the planet. When you think about what an ecosystem is, an undisturbed ecosystem is like the tissue in your body or the, the, the material of the fabric that you're wearing. It's a weave. You know, all of this connectedness, if you take a chunk out of the ecosystem, then it totally removes the capacity and can even sever the ability of that ecosystem to move moisture across a, a distance, to be habitat for other life, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's like we have, um, we've made some pretty big errors here by not being aware of the importance of the life system. This is a mapping from 2014 that's just showing basically where development has really, really taken over the soils of our planet. So this fragmentation of these sponge systems on land is not a good idea. The best analogy I think is your own body. The lymphatic system of your body is responsible, mostly responsible for moving moisture and other things through your entire physical system. And the trees and the forests on our planet are like that. As we cut them down, as we sever them, we are literally just disabling and destroying the uh, infrastructure of this moisture circulation system. But it grows back, it wants to thrive. And so we can literally expect that if we put things back, we will restore the moisture flow. We will restore the planetary lymphatic system back to as full a capacity as possible. In the tropics, trees can grow or forests can grow back to closed canopy from a devastation in three to five years. Up here in North America, maybe eight to 20 years, depending on where you are. But again, this is the right timeline. And as they're growing, they're absorbing carbon, providing habitat, doing a lot of other important things associated with the sponge, including cooling the planet. So last but not least, circulation really quickly. It's the same property. These tiny leaves, just like the pores on your skin, have tiny stomata that are moving so much moisture. It's just this phenomenal reality that when you look at a forest system, I don't have a, a good visual for this, but the density of moisture in and above a forest is greater than the density of moisture in the general air, generally speaking. 
And since the atmosphere is a contiguous structure, we're living in its bubble, when you change that moisture component by deforesting the tropics, it can cause drought in North America. It can cause drought in Central America. That's what the green squiggly lines are showing if we deforested the Amazon completely, science shows it would definitely cause drought. Likewise, by affecting these tropical systems, you can create floods as well. You basically change the circulation of moisture in the atmosphere and destable it and create these crazy climatic events that we've had, these, these super tragedies. Now what we're seeing is a combination of the fragmentation. You know, For instance, California was covered in redwoods about 150 years ago. Redwoods, as we all probably know, live for thousands of years as systems. So we've totally changed that in the last 150 years. And then we've done additional deforestation as people have moved to California. That fragmentation has caused drought. And when you add global warming to the change in the moisture cycle, the system is, is outgunned by a sort of severing of its lymphatic ability. So restoring this circulation will temperatize the weather globally. It will reduce the incidence of extreme storms, flooding, et cetera, et cetera. And all this stuff is coming from the biosphere. We have the potential here to stop and reverse climate change. And the main priorities are indigenous rights, which I haven't even mentioned really yet. And then the ecosystems, the forests in particular, the coastlines and the wetlands, grasslands, and the equatorial and cold oceans. That was, that's what you see in this mapping here. The dark green is the most productive, but then if you look at the coastlines, when you see red, that's also super productive. Uh, and then you see yellow in the equatorial oceans and the cold oceans of the, of the poles, that's also where the productivity is. So where it's blue and purple and brown is where the earth is not productive effectively and white. And these are the priorities for the future of making life on our planet continue, making civilization continue. To me, and I think logically, this is what makes the most sense is to address this whole system now. We have so many issues. And when we talk about climate change as the number one problem for humanity, we're ignoring the immensity of other issues we have because we have built the system without concern for the life support system. We've built the economic system without concern for the life support system. So if we do the, the, the climate change stuff we're talking about now, which is very much in question at sort of these national levels, we're really not addressing most of the other things on this list. And this is not a complete list, but these are different types of critical issues that we need to absolutely turn around this decade. If we put the life center, the life system at the center of our way of life, all of these things get answered. They become part of the challenge for how we move forward and, and progress. So reformation of the economic system means designing our economics to protect forever ecosystems. These vital organ ecosystems you saw that are the most productive. It means making everything regenerative, particularly agriculture, which hopefully a lot of people have heard of regenerative agriculture. It means making everything circular, this idea of a materials economy that doesn't create new waste and new toxicity. And then it means innovating for the life support system itself. So I wonder if I should, Anne-Marie, if I should stop because of time to sort of wrap up or go through another three or four minutes here. Uh, I would suggest maybe if you can just wrap it up in one minute and then we'll go okay. to questions. Okay, great. So this slide is, is giving you a little more detail. I don't think I'll have time to read that. This is emphasizing that we are in a cultural posture where we don't understand the value of this forest system. And it, it is the primary component of this new way of solving the climate challenge. But it's also part of a bigger picture. And back to indigenous people, it is the indigenous people on the planet that are protecting the biodiversity and the forests primarily. They live on about 20% of lands, in indigenous peoples that are intact with their native lands today, but they protect about 80% of the biodiversity and a significant amount of the forests as well. Their culture tells them not to destroy the other life on the planet. Their culture tells them they are living in relationship with these other forms of life, which precede us. And this is what an ecosystem looks like when it's managed by indigenous people. It is uh, intact and whole. This is what our best idea for removing carbon looks like. I have a lot of critiques that I think are fair. They're not angry or anything, but again, back to um, thinking about climate change and technology as the way forward for society, you know, our technologies are not built in ways that, that fix all of the problems we need to fix right now is the shortest way to say it. But also when they perform, they do not solve these problems. So this thing, for instance, would have to cover something like 80 million acres of land 
and all it would do is suck carbon out of the atmosphere and it'd be enormously expensive to build. The final here is just there's a bunch of new values. I would like to go back in Q&A and, and talk a little bit more about the biospheric reformation ideas, but these values for the economy are about, you know, we need to add these things to the economy. We don't protect, we don't care, we don't take care of our life support system. We're not replenishing the resources we have to have to continue for the next 25 years, much less the next 2,500 years or 50,000 years. So all of that can be done in the ways I'm suggesting. And again, indigenous rights, when you wanna get serious about supporting big systemic changes, start with indigenous rights and leadership empowerment, then regenerative agriculture, also the globally strategic protection of lands I've showed you and some of the other items here, lots and lots of things. Again, everything needs to change. This is about serving this indigenous worldview and this idea that we are here to care. It is our job to care for the other life. It's also our job because we have to, otherwise we have nowhere to go. So here's what we've covered, wrapping this up. We've, protecting tropical forests is your biggest bang for the buck action. You can protect an acre for $2. A $16 donation at the biointegrity forward slash solutions will offset your carbon footprint for life. We need to reclaim this role as being the care providers of the other life for ourselves. It is safer to change our systems now than to continue with the status quo, including the current renewable energy paradigm. That needs to improve as well. We can stabilize the climate. We can have a lot longer future here to figure out answers and, and become multiplanetary and all these kinds of things. But for the immediate moment, we are in a downward spiral economics. We need to rescue and regrow the life system. It's the most comprehensive climate solution, the most fail-safe, urgent, and exciting way to move forward. A couple of final ideas. Our economics should strengthen and multiply the resources upon which the economy is built. Currently, we are destroying them, and we have been doing that rapidly for quite a while. Last but not least, forests bring the rain. So thank you very much. I apologize for the crazy, uh, you know, everything. It's because of the nasty things that you said about technology, Chris. It's fighting back. <laughs> okay, well, let's go to questions. I think we have one here. Um, it says uh, CCL's main focus in USA is on carbon fees to reduce carbon emissions, controversial in political arenas. Do we think these solutions are less political and therefore more natural and acceptable? I assume they're referring to what you were talking about. I'm not sure I understand what they mean by more natural, but I think... Um, it's the right thing to do. We're trying to move the system into making sense for the life system and the climate system. And so, you know, the climate action is part of this bigger idea that I'm talking about, that everything needs to fit into the paradigm of reality. We're, you know, I just think that the climate um, culture, the political, the politicization of climate change has made it really hard for us to make progress on climate. So shifting over to a, a life support system discussion about climate, I think could be more effective over the long haul. Okay, other questions. Hey, can, I, can I ask a question? Please. Um, hi, my name is Brian Wheat. Uh, I'm a local advocate with the uh, Texas Animal Freedom Fighters. And you talked a lot about the um, agriculture sustainability stuff and uh, that you didn't have uh, too many studies on that, but I, I referenced that in the chat that uh, my group covers that a lot with our animal advocacy. And uh, like I, uh, I linked with the Project Drawdown I think it's uh, globally like a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions come from the uh, agriculture industry. And so like the, the really driving force of deforestation is, you know, in the Amazon is those farmers and in the industry of like JVS and whatnot, um, like clear cutting the rainforest so they can grow more soy so they can feed more cows so they can kind of like feed this uh, destructive uh, feedback loop system. Um, but anyway, I wanted to uh, kind of pick your brain on like the viability of kind of the carbon capture systems that you touched on. And I don't believe that we have the technology to really do those things at scale, because if we don't have carbon capture, I don't really think we have a viable way to kind of like counteract the system. And so, so what's the viability between the natural way of like reforesting uh, with the, um, the land use versus like the technology of carbon capture stuff? Um, let me see if I can find this slide real quick. The, uh, 
I'll just tell you. The, um, there's a study that came out in 2020 that shows that just allowing nat forests on Earth that are currently degraded to naturally regrow, so figuring out how to not keep cutting down these, these lands that, have, that were forests, leaving them alone, would absorb, by the end of this decade, would start absorbing around 9 billion metric tons of carbon per year. So that's a bigger number than the Glasgow um, deforestation, stopping deforestation commitment. That's literally by not doing anything. That's by allowing the system to do what it does, which is live and thrive, uh, take advantage of every opportunity to be as healthy as it possibly can. So, um, okay, so, so basically, like if we just leave nature alone, it will heal itself. We don't really need to like force the technology aspect as much. Well, it's yeah, I mean, uh, we need to make our economics empower the nature to be the solution is what I'm trying to show. And so right. that, that carbon capture thing I showed, I went through it pretty quickly, um, but it, it's showing, you know, this will pull out carbon, but it doesn't do anything for all of these other categories. That's one critique of the idea of building carbon capture. Another is, you know, no one's really asking for a ton of uh, carbon uh, commodity. I'm not sure why that's a thing, but it's a profit centric solution to a biocentric problem. And so it really doesn't make sense when you look at what it would take to install carbon capture, technological carbon capture. That's what I, I referenced really quickly. That's like 78 or 80, 70 to 80 million acres that would have to be covered with these machines. So that's like covering things with cement effectively. That's not good. Um, and then to make all that stuff would be this, you know, super industrial process. And, you know, a, a, one critique that we need to really look at, I don't have any information on, but like Tesla, for instance, doing this amazing, super sexy stuff, but they have now, I think, six of the hottest furnaces in the world, you know? So when they make the, the trucks, this is a unibody, um, it, they have to heat the, the metals up to, you know, 2,500 degrees and then 1,800 degrees and then 1,500 degrees. And these, these bodies or these cars that they're making are literally heating the planet, the manufacturer of it. We also have to pull metals out of the earth. The, uh, a lot of the renewable technology just to get copper and things like that, we're, we're still mining virgin ecosystems. So the whole climate solution is ultimately about saving the life support system of the planet before the climate system falls apart and the life support system gets too beat up. Right. Restore the beat up system now, it can fix the climate problem. But if you fix the climate problem by continuing to beat up the life system, which is already an extreme crisis, I don't, I don't understand, you know, how that could yeah. possibly make sense in five or 15 years. Well, I'm Chris, glad you mentioned. I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I know we're almost out of time and I just wanted to make sure that we got to this question because I think that this question is one that um, many students have, which is, uh, it comes from Olga. Aside from donating, you know, to Rainforest Trust, is there anything else that we can do? You know, like what can we do to offset our carbon footprint at home? And we're not talking about, oh, you know, use fewer Ziploc bags or what have you. Can, can you give them something to work with, in other words? Well, I really think the most important thing is to self-educate. You know, the, this idea of offsetting your carbon footprint, what, what you have to purchase to offset your carbon footprint right now is either new technology or saving nature. So any carbon offsetting should be done by saving and, and restoring nature. Um, if you can find products that are carbon neutral, that were delivered in a carbon neutral way, that's, that's helpful. But we're talking about you know, micro percentages of, of impact relative to something like donating $2 to protect an acre of tropical forest. This is a macro planetary impact that you can have. So I, one thing I wanted to say at the beginning of the presentation is like, don't let my you know, lack of awesomeness in the way I present uh, make the importance of what I'm telling you less important. This, this is literally the, the best thing you can possibly do. Everyone here should go do donate $20 to tropical forests instead of not donating $20 to tropical forests. You can do it you know, through biointegrity and you'll protect 10 acres. Uh, if you wanna protect something uh, more economically efficient, contact me and I'll find that for you. Um, but yeah, these other things like trying to remediate our lifestyle are super important. But again, the, the system that we live inside of, there's almost literally nothing you can do that's really truly good for the environment right now. Even the organic clothes I'm wearing right now have negative environmental impacts all over the place. So it's more important to self-educate about the issues, empower indigenous uh, stewardship, and change your own mind. Understand how to support the life systems restoration than anything else.
Okay, well, uh, I have a concern. Can I can I ask a question? Go ahead. Um, I I have a concern, and I'm wondering what your thoughts on it. Um, watching climate change movements of the 80s and 90s um, kind of basically flounder when messaging didn't really connect with working class people and the poor, and it a lot of just like cycling information amongst like mostly white and middle and upper class people in America. And I don't, I don't want us to make the same mistakes again. And I think it's kind of connected to, I, I don't know a lot about the politics in Brazil, but Bolsonaro has just like rolled back so much of the work that's been done in, in the rainforest there. And he was elected by, you know, by a majority. So um, like how, how can an environmental movement um, connect with people who, who are, you know, instead of demonizing uh, through negative messaging and, and too much information, kind of like Al Gore style, um, how can, the environmental movement learn from like the 90s the mistakes and like be successful moving forward yeah that's a really good question and obviously none of us have the perfect answer yet but um i think the most important thing is for us to be less afraid to talk to people that are different from us about these issues it's um it's about relevancy you know so when you look at like the way demographics are figured out it's what do people naturally vibe with and uh, what's of interest to them in their lives for whatever reasons. And this disconnect you're talking about is largely, again, we don't have a reason to care. It's not in the Bible as far as most Christians are, or as far as I know, all Christians, modern Christians are concerned. It's literally not what the Bible says. But now I'm telling you, it does say that, you know, the, the context of when the Bible was written and why it was written is that it's about providing care. It's about being attentive. It's about being in relationship with other life if the general Christian population in the world understood that, understood that the, the, they were in a false context about dominion these last 200 years, then we might see some of the difference um, of, of what you're pointing, that, pointing, or pointing to, um, that it would become more relevant to a broader group of people that don't just sort of have a heart for environmentalism. And, and then the other thing is, you know, I'm, I'm trying to start this conversation almost literally today with you guys about biosphere, about other life. And so that splits into two quick ideas. One is we all have a life system that we, we rely on. It is our biggest common value. So I don't know how to lead that conversation. I don't have any idea where to go with it exactly right away, but I do know that this is real. This is truth power. I'm not giving you an advocacy point. I'm giving you the truth about how the system functions that we live inside of. That's gonna be powerful in, in terms of being more relevant to more people it's just, you know, it needs to be said in as many different ways as possible. And then the other thing is we need to reconnect at a physical level to our biological selves, you know, to the beauty of all the other life that is around us on, on our skin, in our bodies, this miracle of existence. There is a, there's so much here in, in turning this corner historically and moving from an era of being just really tuned out and ignorant for hundreds and thousands of years to other life, thinking that it was an imposition, and now moving into recognizing this is the composition that we live inside of. And hopefully that can pave the way for, a, you know, maybe that's not the right analogy, that can uh, make a trail towards uh, us being more unified in our understanding of what it means to live on earth. Okay, thank you, Chris. We'll do one more question and then we should kind of shut it down because we're a little bit over time. So Kazel, what's your question? Yeah, Chris, I think your presentation is awesome. Um, really good. And uh, my question is, do you have suggestions about who to reach out to, to help support indigenous people in their fight to steward the land? Yeah, I, there's so many groups. This is why I didn't do a, you know, a big list. So I, I like um, a bunch of groups working in the tropics. Um, I can recommend, you know, off the top of my head, Amazon Watch, Culture, uh, Culture and Survival. Um, I mean, there are literally hundreds of these groups doing different work. So what I would suggest is going to Google, putting in, you know, indigenous rights or how do I support uh, indigenous rights? Or maybe saying, you know, I would like to help indigenous rights in the tropics and just kind of Googling around, finding your way into that world because it is, um, it's difficult. My, my goal with Biointegrity was to create sort of a hub that could connect people to all of these nonprofits that are doing this work because we need to change the economy to, to facilitate its own continuation immediately. And that would be one of the ways to do it. But when you look at the number of groups that are out there, it's like the list is so long, it's just impossible to, um, 
to make it simple for people. So I think it's better to just recommend go go dig in on your own. You could start with Amazon Conservation or Amazon Conservation Team or Amazon Watch or you know the dozens and dozens of groups all over the planet uh, or hundreds and hundreds of groups all over the planet um, that are doing great work, great 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 work. Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Okay, thank you all for coming. Really appreciate it. Um, Enjoy the rest of your Earth Day. Uh, hopefully you've attended some other Office of Sustainability events. If you have any questions, um, you've seen information there uh, in the chat about Chris, but Chris, feel free to put a link in there for biointegrity and thank you again. Um, Jasmine, if you if you can stay for a minute, uh, we wanted to talk to you for just a sec. Okay, great. Um, yes, we will get, we will um, send you all a link to the recording. Yeah, and thanks so much, everybody. Again, thank you very much, Dr. Thomas and uh, the Honors Program and the Office of Sustainability and the Liberal Arts Program. And uh, to each of you for being here, it really means a lot to me. Um, please check out Biointegrity, please get in touch. I'm trying to now move into a new phase of uh, how to respond to these crises and you're the first ones to see this presentation. So thanks for this opportunity. And um, every day is Earth Day. Let's let's get moving. Let's make these changes. Bye. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Kazel. Bye.